free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you, as always. And um, you can join us, by the way, during the week. Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. If you can't make it at 4, you can text your favorite 9-year-old. And she will show you how to DVR the show. No problem. And here you can reach us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You can hear us all across the country. And you can hear us around the world. And you can hear us throughout the solar system and even the Milky Way. How's that? So I um, I wanted to talk for a second about this uh, Hollywood strike. This is a fun story, the Hollywood strike. We were covering it. Uh, we were covering it on the TV show on Fox Business. The Hollywood strike. You know the Hollywood crowd. I mean, in many ways, <laughs> if they strike uh, and if they continue to strike, I think it's it's really kind of a good thing for America, don't you? I mean, um, they don't share our values. I don't think they even like America. And uh, I'm just looking for the article that I wrote on this thing. I'll read you a little bit from, uh, I don't know the fellow, but a story up on Breitbart by John Nolte. Uh, Very tough stuff. Nolte, hooray for woke Hollywood shutting down. Hollywood is shut down and we're all supposed to pretend we care now that people who hate us and target our children are out of work. Well, I'm too old to pretend as the last unicorn, as the last right-winger who up until a couple of years ago defended the entertainment industry as a vital American institution and creator of art, I'm now pledging those delegates to my Blu-ray collection. Wow. Hate America. Well, that's, you know, it's an interesting story here. The, The union, the SAG, Screen Actors Guild which is um, united with the uh, writers, okay? They've come together. And um, the biggest reason they're arguing for their strike, right? The biggest reason for their strike is Bidenflation, all right? They're arguing that uh, their wages have been eroded by Joe Biden's inflation, right? Okay, so that's, uh, you know, point number one. I think it's a very interesting point. And I don't know, maybe if they get wise, maybe they will actually do a movie or a six-part TV show. How about that? And uh, rip apart all of Bidenomics. Maybe that's going to be the next step, if they're honest about it. I mean, you know, Hollywood, remember Hollywood? They were the biggest supporters of the COVID shutdown. And they wanted to keep America shut down 
for as long as possible. And that was one of the worst things, and that was far-left stuff, woke stuff. But it's interesting, the actors and writers have come together. They're fighting the producers. It's kind of like the workers versus the capitalists. You know, I know Hollywood is far-left, and they don't like free market capitalism. I don't know if they like America or not. I mean, so much of it is anti-America. But, you know, the, the writers, as I say, have banded together with the actors and it's the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, and um, they're fighting the big-shot, ultra-wealthy producers. Uh, one of the producers here, one of the ultra-wealthy producers is Disney CEO, Disney CEO Bob Iger, who thinks the money demands of the writers are way out of, way out of line, way out of touch, Okay. Now, we know that the actors make vastly too much money, but he's saying the writers, too. And this is good old-fashioned class warfare, isn't it? Terrific stuff. Scratch a Hollywood CEO producer deep enough, and what do you get? You get a class warfare capitalist, kind of like the Gilded Age. And um, I guess the, no doubt the actor's compensation is way too, way too high, out of touch, with any reality. No question about that. Most of the acting is lousy. I mean, there are some very good exceptions to that. Don't get me wrong. But most of the acting is lousy. Most of the product is lousy. Most of the films are lousy. And they get paid gigantic sums for all this. And the capitalist producers now uh, are fighting back. This thing could go on for quite some time. And by the way, it's going to you know keep some of these blockbusters off the screen. Barbie, Barbie comes out next week. All right, that one's going to come out. Now, I'm told that Barbie is still going to be Barbie and Ken is still going to be Ken, so I'm relieved at that because, as you know, there's some sexual confusion going on. I'm I'm not going to watch the movie. I don't really care about it, but um, some of that stuff is going to be okay. They're going to keep it. some of these other uh, blockbusters uh, are not gonna are not gonna show why that. Well, even if they're put out, the actors um, are on strike, so they're not gonna do the promotions, right? They won't do the red carpet stuff. You won't see them at some of these big movie festivals. I don't know. We all may be better for it. We all may be better for it. Some of these uh, act uh, writers, rather, they are concerned about um, AI, artificial intelligence. They think they're going to be replaced uh, by robots or they're going to be replaced by computers. Uh, Is that, you know, is that true? I'm not sure it's true. I think the biggest part here, you know, AI, chat, GPT, content producers worried They'll always be, you know, they'd make more money, the writers. They'd make more money if they produced a better product. They'd make more money if they told the truth about this being the greatest country in the world. I think they'd make more money if they erased some of the so-called sexual confusion going on, fostered by the left. And then again, they'd make more money if the economy were roaring. I mean, I think that's a big part of this story. 
Uh, they'll never admit it, but the reality is we have a stagnant economy with high inflation. And they're complaining about the inflation. That's the part that I really love, and we're going to talk about that uh, in a couple of minutes uh, with uh, Joe Concha and Charlie Hurt. So maybe these lousy movies could be replaced with a good movie or a good TV series that says, yeah, you know, even Hollywood has been damaged by Bidenomics. Even Hollywood has been uh, damaged by people who were turned away from their nostrums about climate change and uh, their support for socialism and their support for wage and price controls or their dislike of profits, the things that make capitalism work and down through the years uh, have made American economy the best economy in the world. Maybe Hollywood would come to its senses and realize that the reason they're not getting paid and they're not making the kind of money they should make is, again, I'll repeat, their product is lousy. Now, there's some great movies out there. There's some great series out there. You know, my favorite is A Spy Among Friends, Damian Lewis and Guy Pierce, two fabulous actors, absolutely fabulous actors. I love Yellowstone, and I loved all of the acting in Yellowstone. Of course, Yellowstone never got any Academy Awards, never got any, uh, I think they, they might have gotten some Emmys, but they never got any Academy Awards because it's too conservative. You know, red-blooded Americans, the Far West, individualism, all those kinds of values that made America great. Hollywood hates that stuff. So that's really the issue. I know this is an odd topic. Uh, I'm, I'm not a movie critic, but I think it would be a great thing if Hollywood made an honest film about Joe Biden and what he's done to this country. I think it would be great if they had an honest film about John Kerry, who was really one of Joe Biden's best friends. We'll talk about Kerry and his climate change going to communist China. What's he going there for? What deals is he going to make? He's not accountable to anybody. His position as climate czar was never confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And he flies in his family's airplanes, which itself creates carbon emissions. And um, nobody knows what he's doing. Nobody knows what deals he's making. He doesn't report to anybody. He testified yesterday in front of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Wouldn't give up a thing. Wouldn't tell people what's happening. Who's financing his operation? It's like a clandestine operation. So my point as the lead today, does Hollywood love America or does Hollywood hate America? I think on the whole, Hollywood hates America. And I think this strike is going to go on for quite some time because the producers are hypocrites. They claim to be woke, but they're really, you know, good, hardcore capitalists, and I like that, but they won't admit that they're capitalists in their product. And as far as the writers go... The writers should change their tune and realize they're out of touch with America. And if they're losing money and that their pay is too low, they might want to rethink their content. It's not about AI. They're not going to be replaced by AI because all these things, movies, business, 
the TV business, the streaming business. The content is so crucial, and the content has been lousy. It's mostly left-wing stuff. Hollywood does hate America. It wasn't always true, but it's been true the last 10, 20 years. Their values, the culture they promote, it's all wrong. That's why people have turned against them. That's why this strike's going to go on for quite some time. And the actors have thrown in their lot with the writers. Well, okay, we're going to have a dearth of movies and a dearth of uh, TV shows and a dearth of blockbusters, but people aren't watching this stuff anyway. The woke revolution is an absolute failure. And the guy at the top of the woke revolution, Joe Biden, yeah, the writers can blame Biden for high inflation, but they won't blame Biden for the rest of his lousy economic plan, which itself has done so much to damage America at home and abroad. So let's take a break here. I want to talk some more about John Kerry on the other side and what the heck she's doing about climate change and why this whole climate change business is so trumped up. It has no impact on our economy. And then we'll get some commentary from two smart uh, fellows, uh, Joe Concha and uh, Charlie Hurd. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. I'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. So just talk a bit about John Kerry. Going rogue on climate agreements. All right. This is a weird story, and it really deserves much more attention. Mr. Kerry is the uh, so-called climate czar. Sorry. So much heat and humidity. I think my voice is cracking. But anyway, we'll get through it. So, John Kerry, climate czar. He is a member of Joe Biden's climate. Uh, cabinet. Kerry was former Secretary of State. He ran for president, but back in 2004, lost to George W. Bush. A very close friend of Joe Biden's, very close pal of Biden's. So Biden comes in, climate is a big issue, and he appoints John Kerry to be climate czar and makes him a member of the cabinet. But guess what? Unlike other cabinet members, he was never confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And unlike cabinet members, he has no accountability to Congress. And no one knows what he's doing. No one knows what deals he's making. Whether it's uh, restoring the Paris Climate Accords, going off to Europe, traveling around the world in his airplane. He's gone to China this weekend to meet with, uh, presumably, top leaders. This is another Biden kowtowing to China. The actual Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, went. The Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, went. And now the climate czar, John Kerry, went. So what's he going to do? What's he going to say? He wouldn't tell Congress anything when he testified yesterday. 
Now, he wants to spend $100 billion for so-called less developed countries around the world for renewables. $100 billion. Well, who's going to okay that money? Congress doesn't know about it. It's not an official treaty. Kerry is talking about how we need a new industrial revolution and gas-powered cars. Go 100% electric by 2035. Nobody wants to do that. There's no mandate around the country. There's no law from Congress to do that. This is all regulatory stuff. He's the climate czar, but no congressional laws have backed up or, you know, ratified what he's doing. James Comer, who's the head of the House Oversight Committee, is going to haul Kerry in front of his committee, I think, next week or the week after, and explain how Kerry can unilaterally sign up America to these pricey climate agreements. None of this is constitutional. He's a rogue operator. He has no formal official backing. Now, my last point is this. This climate stuff has been proven by Biden's own, get this, his own Council of Economic Advisors and Office of Management and Budget put out a white paper showing that a slight rise in temperatures over the last 125 years has had virtually no impact on the economy. And they're predicting more of the same in the next 100 years. And yet we are spending trillions and trillions of dollars with guys like Kerry pushing this to completely change American life and society and to rob us of choices, including automobile choices. These are crazy stories. We'll take a quick break. Joe Concha and Charlie Hurt on the other side. And we'll also see about the Biden scandals. How much is Biden in trouble? I think he's in a heap of trouble. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Talk Radio 77. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I think I'm getting my voice back. That's always a plus. Too much rain and humidity up here. Anyway, we're going to talk about some of these current events. We have Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger and a Fox News contributor and the author of the excellent book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency and How to Return America to Greatness. And Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinion editor and Fox News contributor. Gentlemen, thank you. You know, Joe, looking at the, your book, come on, man, the truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency and so forth. This, this is the movie that I want Hollywood to run. <laughs> this is the movie I want Hollywood. Hollywood's on strike. Hollywood hates America. But they're blaming their strike on Bidenflation. That's a key point for the uh, unions. So I'm waiting for them to – I I need them to come out with a full, you know, like a six-part series on Biden's – what is it? Come on, man. The truth about his no good, horrible, very bad presidency. What what is this strike about, and when am I going to get them to fess up that they um, have to, you know, put out the truth in a movie? Well, Larry, for the first time in 63 years, you have both writers and actors – striking at the same time. So essentially, Hollywood is shut down. Now, 
the average person isn't going to notice or feel that because a lot of the content that we'll be seeing in terms of movies like Oppenheimer and Barbie, they, they still will, will move forward. So it will be several months before anything is noticeable as far as new content coming out. But to your point, I don't know if the writers and the actors have much leverage here right now because this is a industry in serious decline. I mean, we think about 25 years ago, it's the Oscar, it's ABC, Billy Crystal's hosting, and America stopped basically to watch that. 57 million people tuned in to watch the Oscars because Hollywood still had an aura to it, and they still did great classic movies that year. That was year the Titanic one, for example. Now, last year, they can't even get 16, 17 million people to tune in. So you think about this, like, where did 40 million people go where they're not watching this anymore? And then I always hear some critics, like, come back at me and say, oh, well, it's cord cutting. It's more streaming. People have more options. Oh, BS. Because the Super Bowl last year, between the Chiefs and the Eagles, 115 million people tuned in more than anybody and more than any Super Bowl ever. So I think in the end, the fact that we have sequel after sequel and remake after remake, how many Spider-Mans do I really have to uh, expose myself to? How many Star Wars are enough? There's not, not originality anymore, and everything's CGI created and Indiana Bones, you know, Jones, whatever you want to call them, 80-year-old action heroes. It's, it seems like they're out of ideas, Larry. <laughs> Charlie Heard, it looks like America hates Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, um, it sure does, and I think a big reason for it is um, it doesn't matter how much it's all Joe Biden's fault. They're still going to cover for him. They're still going to vote for him. They're still going to do, uh, you know, turn the entire industry uh, over to Bidenomics, Joe Biden, and uh, you know all of the Democrat insanity when it comes to election time. And it's a reminder. And Joe runs through it exactly right. It's a reminder that. Um, you know, these people, why it is that the most important decisions and issues in our lives that are uh, sadly determined by politicians, why it is we turn to people who live in fantasy land, hmm. who spend their every day lying to people and d- doing make-believe for people, why they have such an outsized influence in politics, and we saw it sort of get off the rails uh, I mean, they've always been like that, but then it kind of got off the rails with Obama, and they fell in love with the story of Obama, and then and then kind of lost all uh, semblance of of you know any attachment to reality. And then, of course, when Donald Trump came along, who actually you know if you take away all of the consternation and all of the strum and drang, he's actually you know all of his policies are straight down the middle, uh, you know, uh, centrist ideas. And his accomplishments are accomplishments that benefited absolutely everybody. Um, they they went into complete hysterics. So I wish they I wish more than anything. I'm glad they're shutting up. I just wish that they would. I wish they would shut up about politics as effectively as apparently they're going to shut up about their own business. Well, see, taking that, Joe, Hollywood loves Biden, but now Hollywood is blaming Biden's inflation for their drop in wages. I just find that to be hilarious, okay? And by the by, this may be the only time Hollywood is in tune with the rest of America because real real wages for the middle class have been falling for like 30 months ever since Joe Biden was elected president and launched this inflation. So they're blaming Biden even though they love Biden, even though they're pushing Biden's uh, 
top-down collectivist central planning policies and his woke cultural policies. So I'm just asking a simple question. All right, if the, yes. if you if Hollywood if you woke up woke oh, that's a bad word, but if you <laughs> realize that your inflation is drowning your wages. Why don't you take a look at the rest of Biden's policies? Maybe you've got the story completely wrong, Joe. I think there's more than a few people in Hollywood that agree with exactly what you just said. But they know if they turn on Joe Biden publicly, then say hello to your blacklist because you're not going to work anymore. Right. And Very few people can survive a blacklist like Clint Eastwood. He came out. Remember, he was at the Republican National Convention, supported Romney. Right. He supported Republicans mainly primarily over the years. He was a mayor of a, a town in California once. He's one of the few people that have enough power where he, where he could say, screw you. I'm going to vote for I'm going to vote for. And you, you don't have to tell me how to think. But other most other folks in the industry, they know they'll be ostracized in this sort of situation if they came out and said, this is this is nonsense. We can't live with this sort of wages being so low and inflation being so high. Now, here's the thing, to, to, to a point that Charlie made earlier, and, and a point you were making, Larry, as far as they'll always vote for him anyway, as in Joe Biden. New York Times does a focus group a couple of weeks ago, and they find 10 Biden voters from 2020 who fervently supported him, right? Mm. And they ask a series of questions. And the first was, do you think that he's a strong leader? And all 10 answer no. Are you disappointed with his presidency? All 10 answer no. Should he run again in 2024? All 10 answer no. Who are you going to vote for in 2024? All 10 answer Biden. Yeah. Okay. So God. it's like, wait a minute. You just said he isn't strong. You don't want him to run. You're disappointed in his presidency. You're still voting for him. And most people, all of them said, because we fear the alternative, the alternative being a Trump or a DeSantis or whoever may be the Republican nominee. Actually, uh, Charlie, you know, you make a point. Trump is a lot more mainstream than uh, Hollywood or the New York Times or the Washington Post is willing to admit the liberal uh, liberal media. I mean, Trump's running on economic issues. Uh, there's nothing radical about. I mean, yes, he wants lower taxes. He wants fewer regulations. He wants to conquer inflation. Uh, he, you know, he wants oil oil and natural gas workers to hang on to their jobs. He thinks people should have a choice with respect to automobiles. And uh, Hollywood and John Kerry, I want to get to Kerry in just a minute. Uh, they're saying, no, 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 you can't have these things. But it's bad. I mean, Trump is more mainstream than a lot of people realize. There's not a single issue you can point to where Trump is out of step with the majority of the American people. Mm. There's, there, you cannot find a single extreme issue. And it's not just that, that he's more centrist than a lot of people give him credit for. He's more centrist, I would say, than any other politician that we have. And, and as somebody who has been, in, you know, has kind of watched politics for a long time, and I've sort of, uh, you know, wind up kind of with more on the Republican side, but, but mainly conservative, you know, when, I, you know, I, I supported him with trepidation. At the beginning, because I knew he was not like a, a true conservative, mm. but it has nothing to do with this. They hate him because he's effective. They hate him because he doesn't listen to them, and and he doesn't listen to you know he's not kowtowing to the party to the uh, to the you know permanent government establishment in Washington. And you, you take the issue that he gets the most hate about immigration, mm. his immigration policy. And remember, Time Magazine had that extraordinary cover where Donald Trump is standing there indifferently and there's a child at the border, which, by the way, I keep thinking of every time I read another story about uh, Joe Biden ignoring his seventh grandchild and refusing to acknowledge her. I always <laughs> think of that cover, and I wish somebody would redo the cover of him and his, his granddaughter, but whatever, I digress. 
Um, but th- that the issue of immigration, Donald Trump is 100% in step with 80% of the American people. The media so distorted it and claimed he was doing things that he didn't do. But m- more than anything, he was stopping the human the, the humanity cry the human crisis at the border. Not not only for America because we're allowed to have our borders, but for uh, but for the people like that girl, the families who are making that dangerous trek. And but but it doesn't matter. Don, uh, Joe Biden is the one who's extreme on uh, on immigration is wildly out of step with the American people and creating a crisis that is leading to devastation for people on the border and in America. But but, that, you know, he'll never get get credit for it because the media and so many people are so invested in smearing Donald Trump as some kind of extreme, MAGA, crazy semi-Nazi or whatever it is that they call him. It's 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 nuts. And people uh, you look at these polling numbers. People are with him on the economy. People are with him on immigration. People are with him, Charlie, uh, with respect to parental education. Uh, mm-hmm. People are with him about not, you know, not te- uh, teaching sex changes uh, for five and six and seven year olds. And actually, I think people may be with him on abortion because Trump's position is, well, first of all, the Supreme Court put it back to the states. But second yeah. of all, if you want a national abortion policy, Trump is talking about 15 weeks, not six weeks. And 15 weeks, a lot of polls show that's about where the country is. So I think, once again, he's closer to the pulse than uh, than uh, the other Republican candidates, at least. And by the way, let me just add to that. Joe, Joe Biden wants unlimited abortion, unlimited abortion, right up until the very end. That is very unpopular with the majority of Americans. Like any good Catholic, right? Abortion aside for a second. <laughs> and, and you look at all these other issues that where Trump is in step. He's in step with the American people on issues that are literally 70, 80, 90 percent issues. Mm. And it's Joe Biden who is out of step on issues that are 70, 80, 90 percent. Now, uh, obviously, abortion is a little bit more complicated than, say, uh, illegal immigration or, or forcing genital mutilation on children and things like that. But even as you just point out, even with abortion, if you actually accurately portray Trump's position and Biden's position, Biden's position is a 10 percent position in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the Donald Trump's position is far closer to a majority in, in this country and is probably like a 60 percent issue if you actually accurately portray what his position is, but they'll never, he'll never enjoy that accuracy from the media yeah, Joe, on this issue or any other issue. Joe, Biden's actually in favor of partial birth at the end, and good Catholic that he is. I mean, here's another. <laughs> I mean, I don't. The majority of this country is against that. Majority of this country. The further out you get towards term the uh, less and less people want an abortion. I, I don't want to get hung up on it, but I'm just saying Trump is more mainstream. Trump is more centrist than Bi- it's Biden, who's the far left guy. Well, completely. When you look at every issue, right, let's spend trillions of dollars we don't have and then call something the Inflation Reduction Act that does nothing to reduce 
inflation. Uh, let's celebrate when inflation goes from down from 9% to 8%. I, I, I love that. Like Joe Biden's hmm. lowering inflation. Hmm. Well, that's like me gaining 60 pounds the first six months of this year. And then the following month, I only gained 10. And I say, hey, but honey, see, I'm not gaining as much weight as I used to. But wait a minute. I'm still gaining weight. Right. So, so when I hear like, oh, inflation, uh, it's all the way down to 4 percent. Well, it was 1.3 percent when this president took office. So we're spending money we don't have. We're not enforcing any laws at the border. Obviously, on education, you bought up parental rights. You have Joe Biden in the back pocket of teachers unions, which are against that completely. And then obviously we talked about the crime issue, which which doesn't get a, enough talk. Driving people, exoduses out of San Francisco, Chicago, New York. Where are they going? Florida. Texas, Tennessee, all red states. So on the issues, if this is a, an election on issues, then Donald Trump should win going away, particularly because in places like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, those are the states you have to win now in order to win presidential elections. I would imagine those folks aren't obviously <laughs> – it's not California, let's put it that way. So he should win if he is the nominee, but then it, it, it comes down to a matter of personalities, it seems – and these legal problems are going to go all the way through the 2024 election. Our stupid media is going to cover only that and not talk about these issues. So we're again, again going to have a razor-thin election where that comes down to uh, 10,000 votes in this state and that state. All right, kids. Let's take a quick break. I want to talk John Kerry when we come out the other side of the break, our rogue, uh, rogue climate negotiator. We've got Joe Concha. Now at The Messenger and a Fox uh, News contributor, his book, Come On, Man, The uh, Truth About Joe Biden's No Good, Horrible, Very Bad Presidency. And we've got Charlie Hurt, the Washington Times opinion editor, also a Fox News contributor. I'm Kudlow. We'll talk Kerry on the other side of the break. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Everyone is worried about holding on to their money. You've got questions, I've got answers. Inflation, the Fed, Washington, and yes, Wall Street all have their hand in your pocket. In the end, money touches everything. When Washington goes after your money, I'll pivot to the source, find out who's taking it, how much, and why. Do something about it. I'm David Nelson. Join me each week on the Money Runner podcast. I promise to cut through the noise and help up your game. You'll find the Money Runner on YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell and MyPillow are launching the new MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything. But now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes MyPillow even better. We just received ours, and my entire family absolutely loves this new design. The MyPillow 2.0 still has the patented adjustable fill and now has a brand new fabric made with a temperature-regulating thread. It's the softest, coolest pillow you'll ever own. Everyone wants to know the restful night of sleep secret. Well, no more tossing, turning, and flipping your pillow over to get it nice and cool. And right now, buy one, get one free using code 1234. Temperature regulating technology made in the USA comes with a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, buy one, get one free, use code 1234, call 800-887-2185 today. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. My voice is coming back, okay? we got humidity and pollen and all everything, but I'm coming back strong. Joe Concha, columnist at The Messenger, Fox News contributor. His book has come on, man. The truth about Biden's no good, horrible, very bad presidency. God, I love that. 
Charlie Hurt, Washington Times, opinion editor, Fox News contributor. Uh, you guys are going great guns. You're bailing me out. Can we talk about John Kerry just for a few minutes? Honestly, the so-called climate czar, okay, a cabinet member who has never been confirmed by the Senate. He has a 45-member staff jetting all around the globe. By the way, he lied completely. He just had uh, foreign relations, a foreign affairs committee in the House. He lied about his airplane. Yes, he doesn't own the airplane, but it's a family airplane. It's owned by his, you know, his wife, Teresa Hines, uh, from the Hines family fortune. Um, he's making climate deals, climate treaties. Nobody knows about it. It's a rogue operation. It's not accountable to anybody. There's no congressional oversight. As I said, he wouldn't uh, talk about anything specifics with the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, this past week. Charlie Hurt, this guy who is very close to Joe Biden, they're very close friends. In a sense, he's not only the climate czar, uh, Charlie, but he's de facto Secretary of State, and now he's jetting off to communist China to do Lord knows what. What do you make of this Kerry story? You know, it's funny um, because you know, we focus so much on Joe Biden but uh, these days. But, um, you know, when it comes to a world reigning expert on foreign <laughs> affairs, we, you know, Joe Biden sort of t- takes the cake because he's been in Washington for 50 years and uh, has had his finger in every single foreign policy mistake America has made over mm-hmm. the past 50 years. Um, but we also tend to forget that the, the, maybe the number two ranking world-class foreign policy expert that Washington has produced is also John Kerry. He's mm-hmm. right behind Joe Biden because he's been in Washington almost as long and has had uh, has made the uh, you know has had his finger in, in just about. Uh, foreign policy catastrophes as Joe Biden has. Um, but on this issue of, of uh, climate change, it's really funny because, you know, if you strip everybody is in favor of a clean environment. Everybody is in favor of having, a, you know, a sensible approach to, to, you know, cleaning up the environment, cleaning up air, streams, all that kind of stuff. But when you get down to the particulars of what these people are in favor of, which is a massive globalist kleptocratic seizure of all power around the globe in which America pays for everything and uh, power is held by a few unelected people in these you know, foreign countries, this is, a, a, this is like a 99-1% issue. Mm-hmm. And John Kerry and Joe Biden are at the 1% issue. I take issue with one thing you said, though. You said that he lied about his airplane, and he didn't lie about his airplane. It's not his airplane. It's his wife's airplane, as you mentioned. But it's really important to remember that John Kerry made his money the old-fashioned way. He married it. He married the widow of a billionaire heiress to the Heinz Corporation, and nobody would have any idea who John Kerry was if he hadn't married Theresa Heinz. It's so true. It's absolutely. By the way, I knew Jack Hines, former senator. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, we used to play tennis together on Sundays uh, at the old Arlington Y, uh, just outside of the district. I mean, you're you're completely right. And he he just so it's not my plan. What would he think of his fortune being spent this way? Oh, he would hate it. He would hate it. He was a good Republican, uh, John Hines, a really nice fella. But you know, uh, Joe Concha. 
I don't know what he's going to do with communist China, right? Because uh, they are adding carbon emissions. They're the leading carbon emissions creator in the world. The U.S. is the leading carbon emissions reducer. And they're building like 250 coal plants every year, Joe Concha. What in Lord's name is John Kerry going to do? And remember, he's not accountable to anybody. He'll make a deal and nobody's even going to know about it. You said that climate change is our number one national security concern. Can you believe this? Yeah. And, and unless you have China, India, and Russia on board with all these climate initiatives, it ain't going to do anything. It's not going to matter. I just can't believe we were this close to having a President John Kerry in 2004 or a President Al Gore in 2000. Can you imagine the spending on climate if those two were elected? Forget about it. <laughs> Joe Concha, Charlie Hurd, you guys, thank you ever so much. Great job. Really appreciate it. Folks, I'm Cudlow. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Miranda Devine. How much trouble is Joe Biden in? Bribery, influence peddling, how much trouble is he really in? I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. The power of information. The freedom to talk about it. With New York Attitude. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. My voice has returned. It's all great fun. Fighting humidity, fighting pollen. We're still going to go on with the show. And we're going to bring in great lady Miranda Devine, my friend, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor, author of Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Miranda, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. Uh, Let's see. I want to talk to you for a bit. How much trouble is Joe Biden in? First of all, Miranda, give me one paragraph or two. This cocaine story, uh, which is kind of funny in a way, in an ironic way because of Hunter Biden, but the Secret Service can't seem to find the missing cocaine person in the White House. Where is this story going? Hey, thanks for having me on, Larry. I think that it just looks like another Joe Biden cover-up. You know, he's compromised every single institution. Now it's the Secret Service, which, of course, is headed by um, his appointee, a woman who used to be on his um, uh, security detail when he was vice president. Um, You know, to close that investigation down in 10 days with just a cursory investigation... Um, is is just crazy, and it shows that they don't care about security at the White House. Um, they don't care that people at the White House seem to be taking drugs. This is not just the first time they found drugs in the two and a half years that Joe Biden's been president. We now find out it's the third time. Mm. That's right. They found uh, some uh, baggies of marijuana also, didn't they? Just didn't yeah, report it. They right. didn't. So, they didn't really report it, did they? I mean, it came up during the cocaine investigation. That's an odd story, right there. Well, yes, and the fact that they called somebody called from the Secret Service, the fire department, um, to come in and do a hazmat kind of <laughs> cleanup operation of this suspicious white powder, um, tells you, I think, that someone in the Secret Service is fed up with the drug-taking antics at the White House and mm. thought while Joe Biden and his and Hunter were away in Camp David that 
they would make an issue of this and good on them because maybe there's other drugs that are being found that no one has reported. Mm. Yeah, there may be more to this story. Miranda, let's move on. Uh, Christopher Ray testifying before the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, on the Biden scandals, the influence peddling, the alleged bribery uh, taking, uh, all of the uh, LLC bank accounts, the money laundering and so forth. I mean, the FBI has really blocked, tried to block, tried to hide everything. Now, Jamie Comer broke through on some of this stuff. But, I mean, in a sense, I think Ray didn't deal certainly honestly with a lot of these questions, um, try as the Republicans might on the committee, um, I think he sort of weaseled his way through, and I wonder what your assessment was of this hearing. Yeah, he always does this. He's um, just a master stonewaller. He knows that each um, congressperson only has five minutes, um, and so he just filibusters, or he's got all these stock phrases that he uses to to deflect questions or pretend he doesn't know anything. You know, I know it's a big organisation, but you'd think he'd be on top of the most controversial issues, and yet he isn't. And, uh, you know, he has contempt for oversight. We saw that last year when he cut um, a a hearing short because he told Chuck Brasley he had to go off and do important business. Mm -hmm. And he was really taking the FBI jet to fly off on a private weekend holiday. Mm. So um, I, I just think that Christopher Ray is too glib, too smarmy by half. And I don't think that these hearings are, are worthwhile with him. Um, they, either the Republicans have to really get tough with him and start cutting off uh, money you know, for the new headquarters, et cetera, um, or find some other way to pull him into line because he's presiding, he's supposedly a Republican, but he's presiding over a bureau that has shown itself to be uh, corrupt and even today is retaliating against whistleblowers in the cruelest way. Hmm. You know, the FBI story, I mean, there's a lot of parts to it. Um, I interviewed Jim Jordan uh, really an hour or two after the hearing was over. So the issue, there's two issues here. One is the issue of personal secrets, using the FISA Act uh, to get all kinds of personal secrets, uh, including financial records. Uh, the Bank of America's name showed up. That's a bit of a rogue. I know it's a big bank, but it's kind of a rogue bank. They, they played ball with the FBI. The FBI was heavily involved in the censorship uh, with the social media uh, Jim Jordan wants to change the FISA laws to maybe prevent that. So there's that part. The other part, um, Miranda Devine, is, you know, Christopher Ray and the FBI have stalled, blocked, stonewalled, slow-walked every part of the, you know, the 1023 reports, which have yeah. unbelievable potential uh, for the Biden scandals. I mean, here, they're, the FBI has become the problem and I don't know where this is going to lead or how they're going to get through it. 
Yeah, look, on the first part about the spying and the surveillance and the coercing um, social media companies to censor people, including the New York Post, um, mm-hmm. all of that is, you know, because Christopher Ray pretends, oh, it's just a suggestion that, you know, you censor. No, the FBI is immensely powerful, too powerful, and has shown that it's quite capable of wielding its power in completely illiberal ways. And... Uh, and, and, you know, we saw, for instance, I know very well what happened with the, the censorship of the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop. And that began with the FBI spying on Rudy Giuliani. They had a surveillance uh, warrant out for his iCloud, which he didn't know about because nobody finds out about these things until years later. And, uh, and so they would have had access to his... Um, emails from the laptop repair shop guy with chapter and verse about the crimes on the laptop. Uh, They would have had access, the FBI, to my communications with Rudy Giuliani, which would have um, let them know that the New York Post was about to publish or was going to publish at some point in the future. Um, and, And they went to the social media companies and they warned them uh, pre-bunked our story. They mm. warned them to look out for a story exactly like our story mm. that would come up. And that's why Twitter and Facebook uh, were so quick to censor us, to shut down the New York Post, to suppress that story uh, three weeks before the election because they'd been groomed by the FBI to look out for a story about Hunter Biden that they said was Russian disinformation. So um, that there is something really crooked going on in the FBI. That means that they interfered with the 2020 election, just like they did in 2016. And, I mean, Republicans are quite right when they say it needs a complete cleaner. And so to have, to have the director, Christopher Race, sitting there in a in a hearing and just benignly bashing away these and never apologising, never acknowledging the enormity of this corruption is just mind-boggling. Mm. Of course, he, he gets covered up by, by the rest of the media. Um, and in terms of covering up, you know, the, the 1023, uh, that document from the confidential source is a perfect example. Um, again, Christopher Ray and his minions say, oh, you know, we're protecting sources and so on. And everyone understands that that is important. But why did they not investigate, which it seems they did not, these serious allegations against Joe Biden? Um, That's the cover-up. There was about five different avenues that these allegations, whether it was about China or about Ukraine, that there was bribery going on uh, and it involved Joe Biden. These allegations were pouring in and, and, and the FBI just never seemed to do anything about it. And we know from whistleblowers that they were covering up. And we know from the IRS, IRS whistleblower uh, blowers, um, who we'll hear from next week, Um, in public, we know from them that the DOJ was actively covering up for Joe Biden and um, telling investigators, don't go near Joe Biden, don't go near the big guy, the identity of the big guy. No, don't get search warrants for um, the cottage on Joe Biden's estate in Delaware where Hunter had been living. Um, You know, this is just outrageous. Outrageous. 
Well, anyway, we'll look forward to the whistleblower hearings next week. That's going to be the Oversight Committee. I'm still looking for the 17 audio tapes where uh, they talked to Joe Biden and they talked to Hunter Biden, because this is a bribery scandal that is still cooking, even though the FBI is trying to cover it up. Anyway, Miranda, I'm out of time. Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist, Fox News contributor. She knows quite a bit about the story. She wrote Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden's Big Tech and the Dirty Secrets that President Tried to Hide. The Laptop from Hell was the original breaking story. Anyway, Miranda, thank you very, very much. We appreciate your time today. Folks, quick break. On the other side, Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute. I want to talk about why climate change has not really affected our economy at all and uh, why we should be able to drive gasoline-powered cars. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Everyone is worried about holding on to their money. You've got questions. I've got answers. Inflation, the Fed, Washington, and, yes, Wall Street all have their hand in your pocket. In the end, money touches everything. When Washington goes after your money, I'll pivot to the source, find out who's taking it, how much, and why. Do something about it. I'm David Nelson. Join me each week on the Money Runner podcast. I promise to cut through the noise and help up your game. You'll find the Money Runner on YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You know when you start up a motorcycle and you hear it go, vroom, 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 when it takes off. I was losing that. I was losing my energy. I started using Balance of Nature about a year and a half ago. Noticed the results immediately, and I went, oh, my gosh, this works. This is what I've been missing all my life. (laughs) I missed my Vava Voom. I got it back. Start your journey to better health with Balance of Nature. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. For a limited time this summer, get $25 off your first order as a preferred customer, plus a free fruits and veggies travel set with free shipping and our money back guarantee. That's 1-800-246-8751. Go to balanceofnature.com or call 1-800-246-8751 and get this special offer by using discount code WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We bring in Mark Mills, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, author of The Cloud Revolution how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. Wow. Host of the last Optimist podcast, Mark Mills, welcome. Can we talk about, uh, I want to continue this discussion, John Kerry is going to China. No one knows what he's going to do uh, over there. No one knows what treaties he's making, what deals he's making. The guy's completely unaccountable. Um, But the point is, the the White House itself, even though Biden hasn't paid any attention to it, put out a white paper from the Council of Economic Advisors and from the Office of Management and Budget, Mark, and they said basically a couple of degrees Fahrenheit warmer has had virtually no impact on our economy. Okay, point yeah. number one. Point yeah. number two uh, they want everybody to have electric cars in the next 10 or 20 years, and we don't have the resources, uh, not even remotely the resources to deal with it because their own policies are preventing the kind of mining for the minerals. So what do you make of this whole story? 
I mean, it's it's bizarre. It's like a form of mass hysteria because there's this profound disconnect between reports of exactly the kind coming out of this White House that we're mm-hmm. seeing a de minimis impact from a modest temperature rise on the planet. The world is slightly warmer. No, no dispute. Uh, why it's warmer is in dispute. Mm-hmm. But he, here's the disconnect. I mean, the, just the trying to get that many electric vehicles on the road, mandating EVs everywhere, to do so would cost trillions of dollars. And you, you're the economist. You get the same service as a car moving, assuming that they're equal in, in every respect. You get the same utility function of a vehicle, but it costs trillions more dollars to affect. And the key thing to your point is that it doesn't cut CO2 emissions because of the minerals that are required, and they're not produced here. This administration opposes, actively opposes expanding new mining, even though they talk about in policy circles, quote unquote, subsidizing American domestic mining. It's not happening. It's a it's truly surreal. I mean, frankly, I don't think I've ever seen anything quite as surreal in my career. You know, you have written about this, the whole commodity angle, minerals, resources, commodities. Yeah. Um, yeah. So digging this stuff up. So if you want to have electric cars, you got to have batteries. So we need yeah. all these minerals and commodities to go into batteries. But that excavation will unleash quite a bit of carbon. So isn't that sure. sort of self-defeating? Well, that's the that's the key pillar of these electric vehicle mandates and uh, bans of conventional cars is to cut CO2 emissions. And you're absolutely right. So what a single EV has a battery that weighs, which most people I think now by now know, weighs about a thousand pounds. And to manufacture that battery somewhere on Earth, you have to dig up for that one car something like five hundred thousand pounds of the Earth. Mm. Using big, big, heavy oil burning machinery. I mean, forty mm. percent of the world's industrial energy is in mining, and that's before we have an incredible expansion to try to make all the minerals elsewhere. So you end up emitting as much, and sometimes this is the kicker: more CO two elsewhere on the planet in service of building an electric car to eliminate the burning hydrocarbons that emit carbon dioxide <laughs> later. I mean, it's 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 a it, 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 so words fail, and rarely I, am I at a loss for words. <laughs> it's it's dog chasing tail, and yes. look from a common sense standpoint, how can people not understand that? How can I mean, for example, yeah. look, I'll yeah. start with policymakers. You know, yeah. I, how can they not understand that? But ordinary people who look at this story, how can they not understand that? It's look, you want an electric vehicle, yeah. fine. But we're spending trillions of dollars to subsidize this stuff. I mean, the Inflation Reduction Act, Mark, which is the biggest, uh, you know, all these tax credits for EVs, has now been priced at over $1 trillion. But people don't don't understand what goes into this so that we can actually have these electric vehicles. Well, you know, most people that I talk to -to day-to-day life are shocked at the numbers. So they don't know it. So it's a classic form of either ignorance, disinformation, or just lack of curiosity. And then for those who are told it, we have this this uh, surreal naivete that if we just wave subsidies and mandates around, that the mines will suddenly exist, that they'll produce the stuff in a perfect way at a low cost. I mean, it's literally the, the response of many policymakers when you tell them that, look, we're going to have to dig up a lot of stuff. We're going to have to dig up megatons of the earth to build that many batteries for mm-hmm. that many cars somewhere. 
And that'll get expensive. It'll cause inflation in copper, inflation in aluminum, which will make mm. appliances more expensive. They wave the magic hand of subsidizing technology, the market. Their view of the market forces, they'll respond, we'll get the stuff. It, it's a it's it's a strange form of uh, we'll call it naive view of how engineering and mining works. It takes decades to open new mines around the world, and never here under the current policy. So, I you know the psychology of it is is strange because people have been told it's a it's a zero emissions vehicle it doesn't have a tailpipe. Yes, I noticed that, but the emissions occur elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And again, the point here is the the materials and the commodities. It's, yes, you have to build regular cars out of materials, but 85% of the weight of a regular car is steel and iron. It's inexpensive, easy to get, whereas the weight of an electric vehicle is dominated by rare things like copper and molybdenum and manganese and lithium and cobalt, mm. which require 10 to 100 times more rocks to be dug up to make the vehicle. That's where all the energy comes from. Boy, there's no common sense here. Mark Mills, thank you. Sorry we didn't have more time. Senior fellow, Manhattan Institute, and author of The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s, and he's got the last Optimist podcast. Mark, thanks for helping out. We appreciate it. Folks, quick break. Other side of the break, the great Roger Stone, political consultant, strategist, and analyst. Let's check in on the campaign trail, see what's cooking. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're bringing in uh, the great Roger Stone, longtime political consultant and strategist, longtime friend of mine. He has worked for Nixon, Reagan, Trump. He's had New York Times bestsellers. Roger Stone Show, the Roger Stone Show on radio here in WABC, 3 to 5 p.m. every Sunday. Roger, welcome back. Thanks for doing this. Larry, great to be with you. Always. Uh, Roger, the Tucker Carlson primary in Iowa, did you follow this? What was going on there? Uh, Devastating. I mean, uh, Tucker Carlson is a non-interventionist in the tradition of Donald Trump and the tradition of Rand Paul and the tradition of Ron Paul, uh, and he decimated the neocons Hmm. uh, in this debate by asking some of the most pointed questions that the Mainstream media just refuses uh, to ask. I mean, Mike Pence just casually admitted that he cared more about what was going on in Ukraine than what is going on in every major city in America. It was devastating. He spent the whole night on Twitter trying to walk it back. But what should we believe? What we actually saw with our own eyes and heard with our ears or his pasted up tweet four hours later? People were saying there was bullying that came across on this thing. I mean, I know Pence. I'm the like Pence personally. I'm sorry he got snarled up in this thing, but I mean, this—you know—the Ukrainian war uh, is going to be a very vexing problem. It's Joe Biden's war, and the question is, you know, we spent a couple of hundred billion dollars on this. We've depleted our uh, munitions, our weapons stock here at home. That has to be rebuilt. Uh, I think because we have to defend against China, which is the real problem, not Russia. This can be an issue in the campaign, isn't it? I think it may be the central issue. Look, Dwight Eisenhower was elected on a pledge to end the war in Korea. Hmm. Richard Nixon was elected on a pledge to end the war in Vietnam. I think Donald Trump is going to be elected on a pledge to end the war in Ukraine. 
Uh, and uh, with America having its own problems uh, of all sorts, economic, domestic, and so on, uh, I think Americans just don't want to ship more billions of dollars to Ukraine without any accountability. We don't even know where the money's going. We don't know how it's being used. Unfortunately, a lot of the U.S.-based news outlets are giving us the incorrect impression that the Ukrainians are kicking the daylights out of the Russians. General Flynn tells me, based on his varied military contacts, that's just not true. Well, you don't see any, I mean, the so-called uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, you don't see any progress. I mean, the Russians hold the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, they've held it for many years. They're still holding it. They, they it's, I mean, it's a weird war of attrition. It's like something out of World War One. Neither side gets uh, past this Maginot line. And um, I think the, a war weariness, a spending weariness, a budget deficit weariness takes over here. And I kind of like the fact that Trump uh, came out, you know, on the spending side in general, he wants to restore executive authority for impounding wasteful spending. So I think that's going to be more popular than another couple of hundred billion dollars to Ukraine. Well, what's even more disturbing is that we don't even have any ongoing peace talks. There's not even an attempt to settle this and end the killing. We now know that there were at least two, I think, promising opportunities to end the the entire conflict, and they were both rejected by Anthony Blinken and the Biden State Department. Hmm. Uh, so uh, when Donald Trump says, look, I know everybody involved. I could solve this in 24 hours. Uh, I think he's, you know, a little bit of hyperbole, probably take hmm. him 48. And the <laughs> point is, uh, he is the guy who cut off the Russian pipeline. So much for the idea that he's a stooge for the Russians. He's the guy who gave offensive weapons to the Ukrainians that Obama would not give them. He knows all of the parties here. They all trust him. They all fear him. He could negotiate a settlement here very quickly. This administration in place now is making no effort whatsoever to end the war. In fact, they're sleepwalking us into World War III. Hmm. The approval of cluster bombs. I talked to various veterans yesterday. This, the, all they're doing here is increasing the killing. This, hmm. this makes very little sense. Trump had an excellent statement on it. So did uh, RFK put out a great statement against it. Uh, these neocons are out of control, and I really think they want World War III. I honestly think that is their goal. Uh, Roger, one thing that I wasn't crazy about, why is uh, Trump attacking Governor Kim Reynolds, who is, A, very popular in Iowa, but, B, Roger, she's done a good job as governor. I mean, she's cutting taxes and pushing school choice. I've interviewed her several times on the TV. Uh, is it really necessary to attack her? Uh, I didn't. Uh, I saw it. Um, I didn't like it myself. Uh, mm. She's neutral. I think the president um, feels, and I can understand this, that she did come to him on bended knee and begged that he come in there for a late rally for her because she was in a very competitive race. Mm. Uh, he changed his schedule to campaign for her, uh, and now she's taking a formal position of neutrality. But Larry. You know, I know a lot about the underside of politics. She's helping Ron DeSantis. We know it. She knows it. He knows it. And he doesn't like it. Mm, so he's talking about it. Uh, just in the last minute, Roger, uh, what's your assessment of the Republican primary race? Uh, I think it is, it is a race that is essentially over. I mean, Larry, I traveled with the president for four days last week. I'd forgotten mm. 
the, the Trump magic. I really, it's been a long time since I've seen it up close. This guy has a an intensity of support. He can reach Americans that no one else can reach. I worked for Reagan. I love Reagan. Reagan was amongst our greatest presidents, but even he did not have this. Mm-hmm. Just to see average people. I mean, on this trip, Larry, we didn't meet with many millionaires or billionaires or even wealthy people. Mm-hmm. But the crowd sizes and the intensity of the crowd and the mm-hmm. – People two and three deep on the sides of the streets with their handmade signs, with their American flags. I've never seen this kind of devotion in my life. This nomination Mm -hmm. contest is over. Trump is going to be the nominee. Uh, Frankly, I I wish most of these candidates, the ones who aren't running for vice president, uh, would get out of the race. Yeah, they should get out of the race. Chris Christie's in the race only to attack Trump. I find it so obnoxious. That's all he wants to do is attack Trump. He has no business doing the race. Roger, who's on your show this week? What are you going to cover? Uh, We're talking about uh, who killed John F. Kennedy and why. Uh, We devote a lot of time to that. Uh, And then I also have baby John DeLutro, the king of cannoli, for a discussion (laughs) of where cannoli came from and where you can get the greatest cannoli in the country. I love that. Um, One last thought. You mentioned um, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., He's saying some very interesting conservative things. He just came out and attacked Biden on Biden's radical climate change, calling it uh, collective command and control government uh, and saying that he's denying Americans freedom. RFK Jr., this is a very interesting story. Is he going to stick it out, do you think? Because I think he's ruffling feathers right now. Well, he wants to seal our southern border. He, yeah. he is very skeptical about the war uh, in Ukraine. He, like yeah. Trump, wants a negotiated settlement as soon as possible. He was against sending cluster bombs. Mm. He is a health freedom uh, advocate. Uh, he's got some very populist conservative positions, uh, and he's very eloquent. I mean, I've never seen this guy where he has ever said anything when, that when challenged, he cannot back it up with a study or documentation. Mm. He's very, very impressive. Now, if you read on Twitter, you'll find that I urged him to run. That's not true, that we're close associates. I know him very casually. I like mm. him very much. Uh, I like him personally. And I, and I like the fact that he refuses to attack Trump. In fact, mm-hmm. he, refuses to, he says nice things about Biden on a personal level. Mm-hmm. He's running the kind of inclusive, unifying campaign that I think the country needs. I, think mm-hmm. he, I, I don't think he can be nominated. But when this process is over, Larry, there's going to be a lot of disaffected Democrats and independents who supported him, and they're not going to be comfortable with the policies of Joe Biden. I think those are votes that Donald Trump can win. All right, folks, be sure and listen. Roger Stone Show, 3 to 5 p.m., WABC Radio. Roger, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Folks, quick take, quick break. Then we're going to talk some economics with John Carney, a Breitbart news editor and the Breitbart Business Digest. Inflation is coming down and stocks are going up. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So on the economy, inflation down, stocks up. But the Fed's going to tighten some more. I don't know. If inflation's down, why do they keep tightening, raising their rates? So we go to John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, and co-author of the daily Breitbart Business Digest, which is a must-read. John, welcome back. 
So CPI and PPI readings were lower than expected, I guess we would say. Question is, is it going to last? And the Fed seems determined to raise their target rate anyway at the end of this month. What do you make of it? Yeah, so the Fed is almost certainly going to raise in July, in part just because at the last meeting they told us, well, we probably should have raised. And (laughs) in a speech, Governor Christopher Waller said, I would have raised, except I was still a little worried about the bank uh, crisis that had developed in March with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. So they held off then, even though they thought they should be raising. And so now, ironically, after all this time, you wouldn't, you'd think the Fed wouldn't still be playing catch-up, but that's sort of what's going on. They skipped that one raise, and now they feel they have to raise in July, even though you know, these, these latest numbers probably don't support that. But probably even more important for that, I think, is we're once again developing this contrast between what the Fed speakers are saying and what the market seems to believe will happen, where you had Christopher Waller saying two more hikes are coming. And we haven't heard anything to contradict that from anybody else at the Fed. But the market is like, no, they're just going to do one more. It's the July one, and then they're done. And, uh, and again, that could be trouble later on if it turns out that interest rates are actually going up you know, faster and further than the market expects. But you're writing uh, in your July 14th, disinflation was broad-based, but you're also writing that the core inflation is still very sticky. And that That's let's, right. take, let's take Christopher Waller, who's a very smart guy, um, Jim Bullard's protege, in effect. I want to talk about Bullard in a minute. But how sticky is core? Why is it so sticky, John Carney? Well, so I think one of the things is we're seeing that the easiest parts of inflation have come out. But if you look at the measure that I prefer to look at, which is median CPI, mm. that is that was at zero point. It's calculated by the Cleveland Fed, and it's been at 0.4% unmoved since March. So that's four months in a row now of unmoving median CPI. So I think what we're seeing is the stuff that we could – that was most easily affected by highest, uh, higher interest rates. We were able to knock inflation out of that. But a lot of the stuff that will be harder to bring down the rate of increase in will continue to increase at too high a level. 0.4% doesn't sound like such a disaster since, you know, we were dealing with 1% a month, you know, not that long ago. But 0.4% is way too high. It will bring us, you know, far above where the Fed thinks we should be. So you think that the Cleveland me- measure of median CPI, I think it was 6.2, something like that. That's um, right, 6.4. 6.4. So that has come down some, but it's still very high. Is that going right. to be sticky? Is that going And, you know, should the Fed be aiming at core inflation? So I think that the reason why you need to pay attention to core inflation is not for the Fed's target. But just because these measures, core and median and trimmed mean, really get at something that you don't necessarily see in the headline number, which is the, tr- the underlying trend. So it tells you not just what inflation has been over the last month, but probably gives you a better hint of where it's going next month. So if it is staying sticky, it's telling you you're probably not making much more progress in the near future on inflation. Mm. But you do write uh, the Bank of America's article 
um, the three-month inflation change, the number of prices going up is now less. In other words, the diffusion index is coming down. Inflation is less widespread than it was. That's right. And we are seeing a narrowing in that, you know, in inflation. We're seeing things like like some of the most punishing kinds of inflation that we were having, like food inflation, is coming down. I mean, it's hard to, for me when I tell people that they almost don't believe me, hmm. in part because when they look at something like if you look at over a two year span, you know, food prices are up 15 to 20 percent. Hmm. So people still feel sticker shock when they go to the grocery store. But what I, you know, what is happening is they're not going up as fast as they were uh, compared to, you know, where we were last summer. You know, John, you should write a piece. The Hollywood writers, script writers who have gone on strike complaining about high inflation, reducing <laughs> their real wages. Now, Hollywood loves Joe Biden, but they don't like Bidenflation, John Carney. You should write a piece about that. No, that's a really good point, Larry. I, I do think that actually a lot of the labor unrest we're seeing, not just with the Hollywood uh, writers and the actors, but across America, a lot of this actually you know, is driven by inflation and mm. by Democrat groups who are, you know, who are upset at the consequences of the Biden economic plan. Right, but those groups want to pour in more and more spending, right? It's a grift. More and more spending on climate and everything else. John, let me switch gears quickly. Uh, Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed is leaving the Federal Reserve, uh, and he's going to be the new dean of the uh, Purdue Business School, uh, which is great for Bullard. Now, Bullard, I think, if not the smartest, was one of the smartest guys in years on the Fed. He was also one of the most hawkish. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think we're losing a very important voice on yeah. inflation because yeah. Bullard also isn't a permahawk. He yeah. was actually thinking the Fed was going too far back in 2018 and 2019. So mm-hmm. he's a guy who really could be counted on to give a sober, intelligent, and you know, comprehensive analysis of where the economy was. And even though he wasn't a voting member on the FOMC this year, I think having him there and having his voice was very important, and we're not going to have him now. So his, I'm going to say his protege, Christopher Waller, who taught economics at Notre Dame, was the research guy at the St. Louis Fed. I mean, it was Bullard, you know, who introduced Waller to me. Uh, and so Trump and, and then wound up putting uh, C- uh, Christopher Waller on the Federal Reserve Board, filling an open seat. But he's really going to take that slot. Waller's going to have the sort of Bullard slot. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting that Waller, the speech I was referring to earlier, where Waller said, you know, was warning, I'm going to have, you know, I'm in favor of two more hikes. I think that a lot of the past hiking has already come through the system, that it's no longer lagged anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave that speech on the same day that Bullard announced his retirement. I don't think that was an accident. I think mm. he decided to, you know, make sure that he he was literally, you know, inheriting the uh, mantle of being the leading mm. hawk on the Fed right now. Right, 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 right. John, uh, in the last minute or so, uh, recession watch, how do you see it? So I, um, I'll note that. There's a big headline on the Wall Street Journal today that says people are pushing back their recession projections until mm. next year, which mm-hmm. is something I did quite a while ago. Yes. I said we're not having a recession until next year. I think that's still what we're seeing in the numbers. 
Um, there, you know, the parts of the economy are not doing well. Uh, and we'll, next week, we'll find out a lot more about how housing is doing. We get housing starts and existing home sales and home builder confidence. So I'm going to watch those numbers closely because housing has been coming back. And if it keeps coming back, that's going to keep pushing off the recession. What about uh, are we going to get industrial production and manufacturing production next week? Yes, we are. And that is been that is the, probably the weakest part of the economy, although there may be a boost from, you know, in the headline number for industrial production from utilities, just mm-hmm. because there's been so much heat across so much of the country mm-hmm. that, you you know, you get these weird things. But don't pay attention to that. What you really want to look at is manufacturing production and capacity utilization. And I imagine that's going to be pretty weak based on all the ISM numbers we've seen. And it's, I mean, it's been weak consistently. I mean, I think we're in a manufacturing recession, Joe Biden notwithstanding. I think we are. Actually, that's one of the weirdest things is a real economic recession is when you get a lot of parts of the economy going into recession all at once. What we seem to have done is we were in a housing recession last year. Now we're in a manufacturing recession. But one of the things that means is that the economy doesn't grow tremendously, but, it, you know, it's, it's able to keep growing at you know, 1% to 2% uh, quarter after quarter. So I know people will say the economy is stronger than we think, 1% to 2%. But, John Carney, i got to tell you, in my book, 1% to 2% is terrible, lousy, stagnant growth. This economy, a vibrant American economy should be four, five, six percent. That's that's, you know, and I think these Biden-esque policies are, you know, stifling that kind of growth. You're right. And we long term, if we only grow at one to two percent, which frankly is the Fed's long term projection, that's a disaster politically. It's a disaster socially. It's a disaster internationally because it will mean the U.S. economy continues to weaken compared to other economies around the globe. We need to have policies and leaders who can help us grow at a much faster pace than this one percent. It's really sad that we think one to two percent is you know is good enough. It's not. Amen to that. Amen to that. John Carney, a bright co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, must read every day. Thank you, John. Folks, quick break. Other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. Very good week for stocks. You want to stick around. How to Get Rich, that's our our title. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. The voice is working much better than it was a couple of hours ago. By the way, uh, during the week, be sure and join us, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Cudlow. Every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. If you can't get us at 4, just text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. And um, here, you can live stream us on the Internet. Just go to LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. We are playing all across the country. We are playing around the world. We are playing in the solar system, and we are playing throughout the Milky Way, whatever that means. I have no idea. Anyway, let's talk stocks. Very interesting story. Very interesting story. Stock market had a very good week. The uh, Dow is up 774. The NASDAQ was plus 453. 
The S&P 500 was up 106 points to 4505. Year to date, the broad index is up 17%. Inflation readings were low, as we just discussed with John Carney. Interest rates fell substantially across the board. Two-year notes were down 18 bips. The 10-year was down 23 bips. It's now 383. And uh, there's a big story about uh, bank stocks. Anyway, let's bring in our wonderful experts who are going to make us rich. Jack Berugian, the chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jeff Kilberg of Notre Dame, the CEO of KKM Financial. Jeff, I love the Notre Dame part. You know, you got to put that in. Very you got to love Lou. Yeah, you guys are great. So, um the lead story in today's Wall Street Journal, big banks post jump in profit. That's what I want to start with, big banks. Now, they're talking about um, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citi. But I want to go here. Higher interest rates that pushed Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic Bank to failure have largely been a benefit for the mega banks, which all attracted customers reaching for safety. J.P. Morgan's purchase of First Republic with government aid boosted its consumer and commercial businesses and gave the bank an immediate $2.7 billion gain. But then the story goes on, fellas. The picture could be less rosy for smaller and mid-sized lenders, which will start reporting results uh, next week. And some regional banks have lowered their second quarter earnings forecasts in recent weeks saying they underestimated how much they would have to shell out on deposits. So I want to get your take on that. Bank stocks are very important. They're sometimes the leading indicator for the market. Uh, let's chew on this one. All right. That's, uh, so, Jeff Kilberg, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's fascinating. Uh, if you look at financials overall, Larry, financials are unchanged on the year. If you look at sector spider XLF. But what the picture that was painted by J.P. Morgan on Friday was they saw growth, 67% year-over-year growth. You're absolutely right. They picked up nearly $3 billion in profit when you saw SVB. But the, the picture that's being painted, in my opinion, is that it continues to fortify the fact that the U.S. economy is doing well. You're seeing U.S. consumers and businesses not only spend, but they're borrowing as well, despite these higher interest rates. So that is really uh, optimistic. And, you know, I've had cautious optimism all year. I think they made fun of me a little bit in the first quarter, if I recall. <laughs> but you know, the banks are kind of really really telling us that it's going to be okay. We know slower growth is coming. That's going to be reiterated in earnings season. But the big banks, and we're going to wait to see Goldman next week, Bank of America, and Morgan Stanley. But I think the same story is going to come out, that the bigger banks are getting bigger. I don't know how healthy that is, but the bigger banks – are in a good spot. We are seeing NIM, net interest margin, expand, and they're making money. So Jamie Dimon, who's the tip of the spear at J.P. Morgan, I think he, uh, I'm not going to get into his presidential election, but I think what he's doing at the bank is really making sense. But this has been the laggard. Let's be very clear. Financials unchanged on the year. Technology, from a sector spider perspective, about 40%. So they have to come back here, and this is an opportunity in earnings season for them to get bought. Well, the KBW Bank Index is down 18.4% year-to-date. Well, yeah, that, that's a nice. So I, I just got to say that. that, that yeah, the regional banks and the smaller banks. Uh, Jack Bruges, and want you to weigh in. But the other thing I want to mention, uh, 
Jeff just mentioned that the economy. So there's a new the lead story on the Wall Street Journal website. Economists are cutting back their recession expectations. Uh, easing inflation, a still strong labor market, and economic resilience led business and academic economists polled by the Wall Street Journal to lower the probability of a recession in the next 12 months to 54% from 61%. All right, well, 54% is still pretty high. But, Jack Bruggen, what do you think about banks and what do you think about recession? Well, here, with the banks, I think, uh, you know, Killer is actually onto something. It's a really, it's a tale of two different worlds. If, you, if you've got a small business, you're looking for a fortress balance sheet. You know, it's capital preservation, uh, especially after what we saw happen with some of these smaller banks and, quite frankly, with what we hear happening in commercial real estate because that's who's holding all the paper in the commercial real estate sector are those medium-sized banks. It's not the big boys. So all of that pain, believe it or not, all right, is the ancillary effect of these policy mistakes that we've been experiencing uh, over the course of these last couple of years, whether they be monetary or fiscal. And, and, and that is really one of the problems. Now, as far as the economy goes, Larry, you know, you've you got to be impressed with the way the markets are acting. But when, you, when you, you pull back the curtain, what you do is you take a look at it and you realize that it's been dollar weakness that's been driving a lot of this. If you look at what's happened to the dollar since last September, say against the euro, that dollar has gone down 15 percent, all right, as we've seen the market go up roughly 17 to 20 percent. That tells you something right there. If you take out these high-flying tech stocks, the market would probably be lower if you did it on a currency-weighted basis. There is something wrong there, Larry, all right, especially when you look at this dollar weakness when you're talking about it in the world of commodities, and we, we could probably get to that later on, because there, there is acting funny. The, the world of commodities should not be going down in an era where the dollar is going down, and yet that's what we have seen over the course of the last six months. That is a signal of something that is sick right? and, and more than likely going to see and reverberate through, its, through the economy over the course of these next few months. Well, the dollar index is down to 99.96, so we'll call it 100. Uh, it got as high as, I don't recall, 112, 113. So that's yep. what you're talking about, and you are correct. Uh, but, you know, interest rates coming down again. The five-year note is down 31 bips to 405. The 10-year is down 23 bips to 383. So you have a situation, uh, Jeff Kilberg, where the low inflation readings, I don't think the market's that concerned about the Fed right now, the low inflation readings bringing down interest rates, I assume that helps multiples, right, uh, price-earnings ratios, and um, the stock market is going up. I mean, look, kids, you've got, let's see, the S&P is now back to 4505. What's the high, Jeff Kilberg? The all-time high in the S&P was what? Forty-six and a half, yeah. So it, it's another so, five or six percent higher. So we're coming to a record S and P, despite all the pessimism. I got to give you credit; you did hang in there. All right, you get a kudo on that. 
Well, it goes back to thank you, Lay. No victory lap here because we get humbled quickly. Former uh, Board of Trade guys, Jack, knows that we can't pat ourselves on the back too much. But what's interesting is that I've looked all year to the bond leadership. In the bond leadership, we saw a historic rate hike. We never saw 500 basis points with the velocity that the Fed injected. But now we've seen this tranquility. And to your point, we saw a cooler than expected CPI number for the month of June at 3%. Let's remember just a year ago, June of 2022, there's 9.1%. So that in itself knocked the two-year yield, knocked the whole Treasury curve lower that day in the wake of that better-than-expected CPI number. So we are kind of in an opportunity where everyone was thinking no smooth landing, hard landing, recession. That's all been pushed out because of the bond leadership. And now this bond leadership is hopefully going to help all sectors because it is bifurcated. Jack was right. There's a, there's a couple signals out there that don't feel good as a trader or investor. But I think things have become so distorted in the wake of COVID-19, we don't know what's normal. It's hard to rely on history. And if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, that's the thing I've harped on the most. The Fed's balance sheet is still north of $8.3 trillion. Yeah. That's the softest pillow ever on a tarmac to have this economy in a soft landing. No, that's right. The Fed has not really reigned. I mean, it's come down about $700 billion net-net. But you're right. It's still a big number, over $8 trillion. I think that thing was about two or three trillion a few years ago. Um, Jack Brugian, oil rallied two percent. Uh, the crude is WTI seventy five forty two. The Brent crude is seventy nine sixty three. Now I don't know. You got saber rattling for production cuts with uh, Saudi OPEC plus, including Russia. What's the oil outlook? Does this mean? I mean. The weaker dollar would uh, would lead to higher oil prices, Jack. And regardless of what OPEC happened. says, and has not happened, Larry. That's that's one of those signals that that Killer and I are talking about. Then when you're a trader, you look at it and go, "What's going on here?" You know, oil was at a hundred dollars a barrel, or roughly right around there in September. Since then. We've seen the dollar go down, and oil has gone down. We've seen wheat go down. We've seen corn go down. Mm. Copper is under $4. Something is happening here. All right? Now, is it good for us to see disinflationary pressure? Of course it is. That's what the, the Fed wanted. But the real question is whether disinflationary pressure turns into deflation. Right, mm-hmm. which is something that's happening in Japan or in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in China. And, and that's really what we have to be concerned with because, quite frankly, I don't think that we have seen the effects of what the Fed has done yet. And more importantly, and I've said this to a couple of people, we're being lulled into complacency these days with very light volume, a summertime condition in the market, and this FOMO attitude that everybody has to get into the market and all the bears are starting to, you know, to show capitulation. It, it, that, that, to me, is is a sign of a classic top. And, and right. Killer Real and I quickly. know when, when people... Yeah, no, when, Jack, when, you bring up a great point. Look at the VIX, under 14, and you could argue it's complacency. But, uh, however, option traders are options traders, and they're not seeing anything that's that troublesome on a 30-day horizon. So it is a very bifurcated view and perspective. I agree. All right, got to take a break. Take a break. Uh, I want to talk about the inverted yield curve on the other side of the break. Jack Berusian... Chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Fund, Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Uh, fellas, hang on one second. We'll be right back, everybody. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jack Berusian, Chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM uh, Financials. Uh, Jack, let me go back to you. The yield curve is still very badly inverted. 
I mean, we talked about lower interest rates. But the the three-month T-bill did not fall. In fact, it went up two bips. So you've got a 535 at 3-bill, and you've got uh, 383 at the 10-year note. If you use the old Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, model of the yield curve, um, this inversion shows a 70% chance of recession in the next year. So everyone's talking about how there is no recession. The Wall Street Journal article, uh, the economists have lowered the probability, and the stock market is having a good run. But you're saying something is just not right uh, with some of these other market aspects. I mean, I wouldn't dismiss the recession threat out of hand, and that could, Jack, explain actually not only the, the drop in commodities but also the drop in interest rates. You've got deflationary forces here. You can, you can see it in this yield curve, Larry. You and I have been around these markets forever. But when you start to see two full points between the three months and the 10-year, mm-hmm. that is a red light flashing and warning you. Yeah. So essentially the bond market but, – but remember, the bond market has been telling us this now for a while, and it's been wrong. So, you know, the, the, but the one thing that it is telling us, at least the message that I gather from it, is that the Fed – has to induce a, real, a, a recession, has to create demand destruction, mm-hmm. has to do everything in order to get the economy back to where it needs to get to. And, and that, uh, until we start to see this yield curve act the way it should, in a more normal fashion, I'm afraid that that recession black cloud is going to be hanging over us for a while. Jeff Kilberg, um, how do we get rich here? What's your, what's your, you know, make me raise, make the Cudlow Trust even better. <laughs> you bet, you bet. And I don't, just a quick pushback on Jack, who is a friend of mine. The, the way I see the yield curve and what it's telling to me is that it's synthetically like an interest rate hike. The Fed by design has allowed this curve to be inverted to create a higher cost of capital. They're trying to pump the brakes on something they inflated the living life out of. Uh, but how do we make money here? I think you have to understand momentum. And, you know, last year in 2022, they, you know, knocked the feathers off all of the tech stocks. And here we are seeing this technology run move. It's called the nasty of the NASDAQ. Now, it is interesting. On July 24th, the NASDAQ 100 is doing a special rebalance. Even they have admitted the fact that the NVIDIA's and some of these big Microsoft names and Apple's have gotten too big for the index. So they're actually doing about nearly a 20% haircut. And if you talk about those top five stocks, the FANG stocks we've talked about for all these years, they're representing nearly 55% of the NASDAQ 100. They're going to trim that down. And those same stocks represent 22.5% of the S&P 500. Just, but my Jeff, point is, is that, re- technology is that rebalance, what, is that an S&P 500 rebalance? Larry, it's a NASDAQ 100. It's a special oh. intervention. It's only happened, yeah. and this will play up to, to Jack's paranoia. It's only happened twice, 1998 and 2011. So this is the third time they're doing a special rebound. So it's a really interesting thing to kind of dive into, better understand. But they're doing it right before earnings season happens. You know, technology will be earnings report at the last week of July here. So it's kind of a fascinating timing, which definitely puts my spidey senses on high alert. So you're not short run. You're a little worried. 4,600 has been my target, which got laughed at, you know, three, four months ago. So 4,600 mm-hmm. is where we are going to be doing a lot of protection, a lot of option overlays. We like selling aggressively at the money calls and owning some downside protection. And it's very easy to buy protection when the VIX is at 1314 versus the VIX back up at 2025. So I think you have to be considerate. You have to rebalance. But we're almost there, Larry. 
Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, but 4,600 is where I think the market goes. And uh, Jack Perusian, what do you think? How do we get rich? Well, I think killers answer something here. I think this is the time to start raising a little bit of money. Uh, you know what you want to do, unless you're convinced that the dollar is going to go down another 10, 15 percent over the course of the next six months, which I don't think is going to happen. I think what we're going to probably have to do is retrench a little bit. And if that's the case, then we can put some money to work at some more comfortable levels. But right. uh, but I do I do feel as if the market's getting a little frothy at these levels. All right. Frothy at these levels. Jack Perusian of the Global Smart Commodity Group, Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial. Terrific stuff, gentlemen. Thank you, folks. Tip quick break. We're going to do some money in politics on the other side. We have Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm still Cudlow. Stick around. More to do. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. Larry Kudlow, we're going to do some money in politics. We have Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. We have Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and <laughs> WABC radio host, More Money, following this show on most of these very same stations. Kids, welcome back. Liz Peake, start with you. The Bidens are going to cancel $39 billion worth of student loans. The Supreme Court just said you can't do that. Okay? What is up with the Bidens? All right? You can't do that. We have constitutional government with three branches. The Supreme said no, and Biden is persisting on this. And anyway, it's a lousy idea. So what do you make of it? Other than that, uh, look, I mean, Joe Biden needs the Obama coalition to get reelected. The Obama coalition relied heavily on young people and young people are not particularly in Joe Biden's camp. So I think this is uh, another way of just kind of reminding them that he's out there trying to do this. And yes, what's really heartless uh, actually, I read an um, op-ed piece by someone in the Washington Post about this. I was surprised it, be, because the argument was it was really heartless to hold out hope for all these young people who have student loans that are going to be paid off uh, under the former proposal, which was going to cost half a trillion dollars, and then basically have the rug pulled out from under them. Apparently, the government did no preparation, did not reach out to any of these would-be student loan forgiveness uh, beneficiaries and say, hey, by the way, this may not work, so prepare yourself to start repaying your loans. It's a pretty shocking thing. This $39 billion, modest by comparison, mostly, as I get it, targets people who have been paying off their loans for a long time, uh, so they're not young people. So it's really just, in my view, just kind of symbolic. But, I mean, I think they're hoping no one will really notice what the impact is. The impact's going to be pretty modest. Yeah, but Steve Morris, if you listen carefully to what Liz just said, Liz Peek, <laughs> calm, modest, <laughs> analytical. What she's saying is this is vote buying, okay? That's what I heard. Vote buying by the Bidens, Steve Moore. What do you make of that? Boy, that's almost like saying there's gambling going on in this establishment, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, look. Uh, 
if I was thinking, you know, what what if Donald Trump tried to do something like this? Mm-hmm. You know, what would the press and what would the Congress and what would the Democrats? Oh, my God, he thinks he's a dictator. You know, he's a tyrant. He thinks mm-hmm. he can do whatever he wants. And I don't hear any of that coming out of uh, out of uh Washington's media or or the Democratic Party. But look, well, if, even if it were constitutional and it's not, it's a stupid mm. policy mm. that we're going to forgive mm. people for their debts and make other people pay. I just think it's, you know, what, what we do in Washington, this is one of my, uh, you know, one of the things that riles me so much is that we reward uh, vice and we punish virtue. You know, we're punishing the people who did the right thing and paid their loans off, and we're rewarding people who didn't. And just like taxes, Larry, I mean, you and Art Laffer taught me this. You know, you reward people for their work and their initiative and their entrepreneurship, and then we pay people not to work. I mean, this is what government does, and it's why our economy is not growing nearly as fast as it should. Yeah, Yeah, and Larry, Larry, can I add one more thing to that? The other thing they're doing is they're rewarding just the people that they accuse Republicans of rewarding. All the tax cuts went to the wealthy, supposedly. Who do you <laughs> think student loan forgiveness goes to? It doesn't go to the bottom of the income chart. It goes to the high-income people who are basically college graduates who earn millions of dollars more over the course of their lifetime than people who did not go to college. So it's, it's so hypocritical on so many different yeah. fronts, including that one. You know, Liz, uh, you're on to something there. I mean, a lot of this is graduate students, but it, they're yeah. not like professionals. Even with medical degrees. Even it, with medical degrees. <laughs> I, but, it, 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 you know, it's PhDs in sociology yeah, right. and yeah. African-American studies and gender studies, Liz. That's who's getting the. I mean, this is a grift, okay? Yep. Everything Biden does is a grift, Steve Moore. Think about this. All the money they're spending – on these woke projects and climate projects and democratic interest group projects. And then they're all supposed to vote for Biden. The whole thing is a grift. Hello. Yep. You're still there. Hey, I lost connection. Oh, you lost connection. Read out. Liz, are you still with us? Yeah, yeah, I am. All right. I agree. I mean, but, right. but look, that's, you're exactly right. All, you know, what, what are the policies? I, I was thinking this morning, Uh, about Bidenomics. And, Mm. you know, if you think about the claim that Joe Biden has out on the hustings, that he's the one who's brought down inflation. So I have many times said uh, that Bidenomics is big government, big spending and big labor. Not one of those things uh, is, is beneficial for inflation. In fact, all are detrimental for inflation. Big labor, I mean, all these advantages and requirements that federal spending has to hire union labor, Larry, drives up costs. All those things filter through into the economy. Big spending, $39 billion isn't a gigantic number, but it's yet another big number. And by the way, our spending is up 40% over the last four years. All of that is inflationary, and, and basically Democrats refuse to deal with it. And then Steve and his colleagues have come up with brilliant numbers on the cost of big government, all these rules and regulations and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, the interference of the government into our private lives and our business lives costing families $5,000 a year, whereas yep. Trump deregulation saving them 2000 yep. All of it is inflationary. All of it is injurious to Americans. And, you know, guess what? People have figured it out, which is why Biden's approval on the economy is in, in the basement. It should be. By the way, uh, the new estimates for the deficit 
for FY23, now $2.25 trillion. Yeah. $2.25 <laughs> I thought we were making progress on the day. I thought yeah. this was the yeah. biggest, most fiscally conservative president we've ever had. Uh, and you're right, over the, la- over the last 12 months, two, $2.25 <coughs> which is like the worst in the history of the United States, except for that period when we had COVID and the American economy was shut down. So there's another joke. And the media never calls him out on this, that that we're now, and we should be booming. The economy's growing at one to one and a half percent. And that's one of the reasons that the, that the deficit's up because the revenues have really started to slow down because the economy isn't, isn't really doing very well, in my opinion. So, and then the spending, my God, it just goes up and up and up. Yeah. Steve, he cut the deficit by 1.7 trillion. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that he keeps saying that. And even the Washington that. Post gave him a bottomless Pinocchio on that, and he it, keeps repeating that number. It's like when he says we. He said the other day we have record high uh, um, uh, labor force participation. No, we don't. We don't have. We're yeah. way below the average. But he 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 picked out one one demographic group. You know, of 50 different government groups. Look, we have record high in that one group. And so he's, you know, so you can't trust what this guy is saying when it comes to the economy. And, and you're right. The thing is, you can't, you can't fool the people on the economy because they feel it every single day. Yeah. Yeah. But by the way, Liz, uh, the other grift, Biden runs around telling people how all the tr- Trump tax cuts are for the wealthy. They don't pay their fair share. This is from the hotline over the weekend, but we've talked about this number before. <laughs> they only pay 3 to 8% of the ta- income taxes. But if you actually look at the data point, the top 1% pays over 40% of yeah. the income taxes, over 40% yeah. of the income taxes, and the rest of it, 95% pay virtually nothing. I mean, it's another Biden lie. It it is, and it's very popular on the left because they don't want to grow the economy. They want to redistribute the wealth that comes out of the economy. And honestly, this whole attack on trickle-down, I think I'm going to write a column next week on the (laughs) supporting and celebrating trickle-down economics because, you know what, every time we've actually done that, cut taxes, growth uh, increases, and the benefits really do flow to everybody. So – you know, all of it's a lie, Larry. What's so discouraging is that there's so few people, and you're one of the leaders on this, who are out there calling them out on these lies. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, mostly the people just sort of nod and agree. Where, where are the Democrats who know better? Where are the Democrats who know what solid uh, economic proposals would look R- like? Boy, are they RFK quiet. Jr. RFK yeah. Jr. Steve Moore, you have to get RFK Jr., for the unleashed uh, dinner, yeah. you've got, you, I saw you him know, last you, night. I saw him last wh- night. Oh. I was at the Freedom Fest in Memphis, and he spoke. You know, he, he's got some crazy ideas. He's very iconoclastic, but he has some good ideas. I mean, he does talk about maybe we should cut tax rates, just like uh, his his uncle, famous Ooh. uncle JFK, did. But, and he also one of the things that has infuriated the left, uh, but he's spot on, one hundred percent correct. He is one of the leading critics of uh covid lockdowns mm-hmm. did you know that yeah. yes and yeah. that that's great finally some democrats are saying and what he's saying is this hurt lower and middle income people the most and he's right well he also said uh, there was a breitbart story he also said the biden's climate policies are yep. command and control wow. and denying americans freedom 
He wow. just came out. You know, he was a climate guy. I used to interview him on the old CNBC oh, I know. show. He was one of the first big climate yep. guys. But he's now criticizing the radical climate stuff. He called it command and control and denying American freedoms. I love well, that. Well, you want, you want some more good news? You know mm-hmm. who he's listening to? Art Laffer. Arthur Laffer. <laughs> you know, so that's great news, isn't it? I'm, I don't know if Arthur's going to prevail, but he's putting some really good ideas in his head. You have to get him to our dinner, and we have he's to coming. talk him he's into coming. the spirit of the JFK tax cuts. When's he coming? Uh, we think we're going to have him in late September. All right. Late oh, that'd September. be great. Right. Yeah. yeah, what I like about RFK Jr. is he's gone out and said, hey, I'm a traditional Democrat. Right. Exactly. Traditional Democrats right. are not <laughs> right. warmongers. Right. They're not pushing the military industrial con- complex. Right. Mm. Uh, you know, big uh, traditional Democrats are not in bed, bed with big pharma. He, of course, right. has a tremendous hate on for the pharmaceutical influence, uh, the company influence in all those COVID lockdowns and the vaccine requirements and so forth. You know, I think we're going to look back at that whole era and say, what in the world were they thinking? And I mean, obviously, there is a brand new pandemic. People didn't know what to make of it. But oh, my gosh, were the policies horrible and the suppression of information. I am so happy that this judge and now it's being appealed by the government has said this was a terrible suppression of free speech. You know, you needed you need this. We need to have this conversation about free speech because, again, RFK Jr., what's a traditional Democrat doing stepping on free speech? That's pretty incredible, right? We're going to take a break. The headline story here is Liz Peake accuses Biden of vote buying. It's a radical notion. (laughs) That's the headline. We're talking to Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host, the name of his show is More Money, right after this show and many of these same stations. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Hollywood hates Bidenflation, but Hollywood loves Biden. Go figure. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. We're with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, <laughs> and uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and most importantly, More Money, WABC radio host, More Money, right after this show on most of these same stations. So, Steve Moore, I'll begin with you. Hollywood is going on strike. The actors <laughs> have aligned with the writers. All right, Hollywood hates America, but America actually hates Hollywood. But the thing I like about this, or one of the things I like about this so much is, particularly the writers' unions are blaming high inflation for <laughs> declining real wages, okay? And so they're striking for more money. Now, here's the thing. So let me get this right. Hollywood hates Biden inflation, but Hollywood loves Biden and won't criticize him. <laughs> Now, there's a problem here. What do you make of this? How can we break through? Well, we have to break through because I want to be able to watch Lincoln Lawyer on uh, Netflix. This has to be a national emergency. It's a crisis. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting that the, uh, you know, the unions um, have tended to be, as everyone knows, you know, heavily, heavily in favor of Biden. And yet. Biden's policies really are hurting the very workers 
that mm-hmm. that uh, that um, you know. Now it's mostly the union bosses that have aligned themselves. Uh, behind the Democrats and Biden with their big stashes of money. But I'll give you another example. The pipe fitter industry, I mean, union, endorsed Biden. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was the first thing Biden did when he came into office. He canceled pipelines. Uh, You know, the miners, uh, one of the major mining, um, uh, uh, you know, labor unions endorsed Biden. Now, Mm -hmm. I would probably tell you, just knowing some of the miners, Probably 70 to 80 percent of those miners were for Trump, yeah. <laughs> not for Biden. Yeah. And yet the Biden, but the union bosses are all in, which what I'm saying is the union bosses are not representing their rank and file members. So, Liz, I think um, Hollywood needs a six part series. All right. Like the Lincoln <laughs> lawyer. OK, they need a six part series on the um, disastrous policies of bidenomics which caused high inflation which you caused the writers that, which caused the writers to <laughs> salaries to decline in real terms Liz they need to come clean otherwise I'm going to have to say Hollywood's a hypocrite that's all they're hypocritical so I I think it's pretty interesting actually that this I I do think that some of the challenges uh, in front of the media industry are real I think the whole fight over AI, the studios saying that they want to take Mm, images of uh, actors and use them in perpetuity without even uh, getting their consent, I think that's outrageous. Uh, And I don't think we know how this story ends, Larry. I mean, I will diverge for one moment. A personal anecdote, we went in London to see something uh, called the ABBA Legacy. ABBA Legacy is one of the hottest tickets in London, and Mm. it is a show of holograms that look exactly like people performing the four ABBA characters singing right. on stage. If you didn't know it wasn't real, you would not know it wasn't mm. real. And mm. it has been done with their consent. But imagine if yeah. Taylor Swift had a hologram created of herself mm. and had 15 tours going around the world. Uh, I'm sure they would have packed sellout crowds everywhere. And I'm not saying you're duping people. They would know it wasn't her. But it'd be the same music. It's a very lively show. This is profound. This is so a Liz, profound Liz, are change. These, Liz, are these holograms, are they three-dimensional? Yeah. Well, oh, it's wow. hard to tell, right? You're in a yeah, stadium right. and you're watching them. They look, right. yeah, they look three-dimensional. And at the mm. end, Steve, you know, when the smoke clears, so to speak, there's a. it turns out there's a 25-piece band there. We didn't even know that that was real. So that's how confusing this whole mm. thing is visually. And let me tell you, people had a blast. So all I'm saying is I think what could be happening in the entertainment industry over the next five to ten years could be incredibly disruptive. I will also say one final thing and then stop talking. If if writers are afraid that robots are going to take over, it's because they've been turning out complete garbage. And what I mean by that is the same storylines over and over Kate, let's take this format of Indiana Jones and kind of update it for 2023. Okay, a monkey could do that, right? I mean, I, I apologize. It, it was I'm a sure. terrible movie. Yeah, it, it was not great. I, I enjoyed dumb. it because I love all Indy Jones movies. But, but look, that, that I think, you know, there are great screenplays in the world. Uh, more writers should be pushing to create creative new ideas. And guess what? I don't think artificial intelligence will ever do that. By the way... Uh... Taylor Swift is bullish for the economy. 
Oh my There's God. a story running on Fox <laughs> Business Digital that Taylor Swift is responsible for four billion of stimulus to the economy because wow. of her concerts. Four billion. All right, because local, you know, hotels, motels, restaurants, everything, because all these people come from miles around to see her. It's fascinating. Tax the rich, Larry. We've got to tax the rich. People like Taylor Swift, even though she's creating thousands and thousands of jobs. I, you know, my producers. I have a very young group of producers. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm at least two and a half times as old as all my producers on the show. So they had me listen. Uh, to the Taylor Swift song. So I, you know, I played them. Okay. I think she's pretty good. Um, but she's, she's no Ella Frank Fitzger- Sinatra. She's no Ella Fitzgerald. I'll tell you. It's a great show. It's a great hour show. She's no Billie Holiday. I mean, it's okay. It's it's not that great, really. Last one. I don't know if we have a minute left. Lina Khan is a crazy person, Steve Moore. Lina Khan is absolutely out of her mind, destroying capitalism and business. Yeah, she's, it's actually kind of a good thing that she's there because it's woken up uh, American businesses to how crazy these people are. But she wants to shut down any business that is profitable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's going and she's losing everything, okay? Yeah. Anything that's profitable and big, but she's losing. She's losing with Microsoft. She lost with Amazon. She's going after chat GPT now, yeah. Steve. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and these companies have to spend tens and tens of millions of dollars defending themselves against these outrageous you know, right. 18th century, you know, monopoly theories. It's, it's, she said she needs to go back to law school. Yeah, back to law school, back to someplace. Liz Peak, thank you. Steve Moore, more money following this show. Thanks, kids. Appreciate it. I'm Cudlow. It's a great pleasure. We will be back next weekend.